This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You're on 3RRR. It's 102.7 if you haven't worked it out. I'm Dr Shane. I'm joined in the studio by Chris KP. Good morning, fella. Hello there. And just you today. It's uh, we've we've really shred the team. <laughs> no, we've got we've got quite a few mums in our group. Yes, and I think um, they amazingly sent through their. Oh, I can't quite make it on Sunday. Uh, yeah. to me during the midweek. I think I, it's I think it's reasonable once a year to give them a day off. Yeah, it doesn't hurt. Look, a big hello out there to all the mums, and I think also I, I have to do a shout out to all of those uh, women out there who are not mums who are perhaps wanting to become mums. Mm, okay, um, because it is. I think it's it's two out of five times it doesn't quite work out with yeah. having kids yeah. so there's probably a lot of people out there in that situation and this must be a real shitty day good them, call I suspect no, good call so maybe uh you know my campaign is to change it from mother's day to uh, women's day next year i know i'll fail but um <laughs> thought that counts right <laughs> anyway uh hello to all of you out there and um yeah i was uh, i had a great moment with my wife this morning where uh, we had our two and a half year old son he was just uh, out of his cot lying on the bed and you know needed his nappy changed and she was standing right there and then she mm-hmm. called me mm. And I said, what's up? And she goes, huh? (laughs) Hang on, you're right there. She goes, Mother's Day. Yeah, good call. Okay. Cash it in. Good on it. for all it's worth. Indeed. Now, we are joined in the studio, folks, uh, by our first guest already. We're going to mix it up a bit today. Because uh, it's just me and Chris KP and we've got to make stuff up, we've decided to put the news segment at the end of the show. So keeping uh, – because there's a lot of good stuff today, actually. It's been a really That, that also means week. that it's going to be the very latest news. Oh. The, the absolute <laughs> cutting edge. 45 minutes later than normal. But we have Dr. Elizabeth Vinken in the studio. She's the head of the Cancer Biology Lab at the University of Melbourne in the Anatomy and Neuroscience section. Welcome, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Look, it's great to talk to you. I mean, we're going to talk about bowel cancer with you and what i want to do first is i remember when you sent through your information i had this there was this great mental image not maybe not so great that basically um our bodies are open in two locations one at the top end and one at the back end and these two points are essentially connected is is that true that that's exactly right um so in essence the gastrointestinal tract which Mm. is the tube through the body um is open to the environment um from your mouth you know to the other end and so because it's open to the environment it's actually you know it's bombarded by a Mm. whole bunch of um uh factors including you know carcinogens and um so the that particular tissue forms the barrier between um, the outside environment and, the, you know, the inside of your body. So um, that's one of the most important functions of the uh, epithelial lining, so mm. which is the lining of the tract, um, but also it absorbs um, nutrients. Mm. But the bottom line is that's, that's exactly where um, colon cancer and, uh, you know, for bowel cancer starts, mm, in right. that um, epithelial lining, lining because it is actually bombarded by now, now carcinogens. Before we- before we jump into the, the cancer part, I, I mean, that lining must be different at... Well, first of all, how long is it? Like, if, oh. if I was to take a garden hose, and this has been done to me, so... Bad I, radio. <laughs> <that's> a, <laughs> but if I was to take a garden hose, and I, I, I did... I did When I had this done, uh, gast, gast, gastroscopy, I remember asking the guy, I said, now, I know you do the other version too, mm. the endoscopy. I said, do you, do, do you use different tubes? <laughs> and he just gave me this look and a grin. And I thought, oh, I don't know what that means, but it disturbed wow. me a little bit. But if I was to take one of those tubes, how long would it have to be to get from the mouth to the anus? Now, I wish I knew the answer to that. 
it's, it's, a, it's a basic question, and it, it, it is very long. Let's right, just so say. it's, meet, mm. it's yeah. in meters, though. It's in meters, meters, and meters, meters and meters. Wow. Yeah. And and during that over that range, presumably the I mean, you talk about these linings, but it must be very different in different parts of the body. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So every uh, part of the tract has its own specialised function. So, right. for example, um, what we focus on in the lab is the stomach and the um, intestines, so the colon. Yep. And uh, so different parts of the body will function, or different parts of the tract will have different functions. So um, in the stomach, it's you know breaking down um, the that's where digestion starts mm-hmm. breaks mm-hmm. down the food with all the acid and all that sort of stuff in the small intestine um, which is the first part of the intestine it's um, absorbing all the nutrients um, and then in the colon it's mostly you know water right. absorption and then um, secreting a whole bunch of um, mucus which helps for a you know a comfortable delivery <laughs> Well put. So that, that makes it sound unsurprisingly like there's a fair bit of action going on uh, in, in this tube. Um, does that mean that uh, the cells are replaced more or less frequently to other cells? Uh, so the intestine, you know, that's a very good point. Um, the intestine has the highest turnover rate of any tissue in the body. Um, wow. And so, so because the tissue is in fact bombarded in essence by a whole lot of factors carcinogens all that sort of stuff um one of the easiest mechanisms really that the body's come up with to rid of um possibly damaged cells or cells mm-hmm. that have mutated is to just replace the line again and yeah. and uh, mm. this happens every three or four three to five days um okay. so in the entire lining particularly in the intestine and the colon is um replaced with new cells and um um, it's been this has been known for a long time, but it's and it's always been assumed um, that this turnover is maintained by some sort of a factory cell, mm. which is called a stem cell. Yep. But I mean, it was only recently that we could actually identify um, this stem cell specifically, and that's sort of been really groundbreaking, you know, research. Yes, yes. Um, mm. Uh, to be able to identify the cells and then study those cells specifically. Now, Elizabeth, let's um, shift gear now towards um, cancer. Now, you sent through some information to me on Friday indicating that about 80 Australians Australians die each week, week. from bowel cancer. I mean, is this one of those areas? I mean, I've... I've talked a lot in this program about um, ovarian cancer and some of the other cancers that really have a bad outcome scenario Mm. and although you know it is a is a terrible thing for people to get breast cancer has had this extraordinary level of financial support Mm. uh, in recent years which is fantastic Mm. but some of these other cancers have have not and you know cancers of the brain um, we saw that recently with the logies fabulous to get that sort of um that sort of stuff coming through Um, but i assume bowel cancer is in this same category of not not really being talked about or known that much absolutely i mean it tends to be because it's a um well actually i don't really know why but but, uh, probably um there aren't as many high profile people Mm. you know involved in the campaign um so probably could benefit from that sort of a um you know promotion um but but it affects um aging uh, the aging population and it's on the increase mm. um and uh, presumably this is because of our aging population right. yep. um but uh, the important thing about um, bowel cancer is that it's actually quite readily um treated if it's caught Early, so um, surgery to remove the tumor mm-hmm. is really can be quite can be curative if it's caught early, but um, 
most people don't present until they've got symptoms and by that stage it's actually um, the cancer is really quite progressed and unfortunately particularly with this cancer it actually can spread to other parts of the body very early on mm. so long before you get um, symptoms mm. Some of the cells have already, um, you know, wandered off into the rest of the body and primarily to the liver. And those right. cells can sit there for a very long time until something triggers them to start off again. Right. And so um, our aim was to come up with a, a therapeutic strategy that actually um, can target those dormant cells that sort of that they can sit there for a while and nothing really much happens um, to target the dormant cells as well as the actively growing cells. So not only to shrink the growing tumour. So this, this is interesting. So when you say dormant, because this, my, my sort of um, physicist's understanding of cancer, which I have to, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Um, <laughs> well responded to. Um, is that, you know, when, when we use things like chemotherapy, this is, this is a, a, a scenario where we go after the fastest growing cells and try and kill them off first. Hopefully the rest of the body doesn't take too much of a hit and you get rid of those being the cancer cells. But in this case, you're, you're suggesting that a lot of these are dormant cells. How the chemotherapy programs work with cancers in that state uh, that's exactly you've hit the nail on you know hit the nail on the head um, um, so chemotherapy is fabulous for uh, killing off the bulk of the tumor mm. um, and uh, uh, and works and you're quite right the strategy there is that it actually targets uh, cells that are dividing um, but dormant cells and we've actually shown this in um, in a model system experimentally that those uh, once those cells um, undergo a transition which is called an epithelial mesenchymal transition but never mind yep. big word basically <laughs> means that the cells are uh, uh, have taken on a different um, morphology that allows them to um, dissociate from the tumor mass and make their way to secondary organs now in that state those cells are quite resistant to chemotherapy mm-hmm. or conventional chemotherapy yep. and um, part of the reason is because they have stem cell properties but also particularly for um, bowel cancer those cells um, aren't dividing actively Right. And we've actually shown it in, you know, in um, an experimental model that you can hit those cells with the commonly used chemotherapies for bowel cancer, and those cells are perfectly happy. Jeez. And yeah. uh, but if you remove one particular molecule, molecule that I work on, that's very important in stem cells, um, Frizzled Seven, um, those cells aren't able to at least experimentally, reform the tumour. Mm. So that's that was sort of like the backdrop to um, why we investigated this, you know, quite so just, extensively. Just, just to clarify, so your work's been not on turning those cells into activity, but actually stopping their mechanism for becoming tumorous later. So you've yep. r- rather than go after them and get rid of them, you're just sort of making them inert. Is that right? Um, so the aim is to actually be able to target them mm-hmm. while they're in that inert state. Right. Um, yeah. But also... I mean, we also discovered uh, in this study that there's a, a very short, sharp um, increase in in wind signalling, which is the molecular pathway that I work on, just as those cells start to come out of dormancy. And um, um, that would be a great time to target them with basic chemotherapy. Right. So in some ways you could actually tickle those cells to be active um, and then target them with chemotherapy. Um, and an easy way to tickle them is simply to treat um, with lithium 
um, okay. you know, which is a happy drug. Right. Um, so, uh, so this is this is something that uh, would has you know definitely works in tissue culture and works in our model system. Um, and there has been a, a clinical trial, surprisingly, where they looked at the effect of uh, lithium um, in bowel cancer patients, but their interpretation was completely different of why they thought that was actually uh, working. Mm. But I mean, that's my hypothesis mm. <laughs> so how, but how how or when would you choose to do that um if if people aren't turning up until they've got symptoms is, is it too late then or is there some way of diagnosing this earlier and saying hey here's a good time to start targeting your cells um you can eat, uh, at the time that uh, the chemotherapy is being uh, administered or just before right. would be a, an ideal time so it can actually um that can be you know uh, uh, administered just before the, okay. the chemotherapy okay. and uh, because it's in a it's um, an approved um, 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 agent mm-hmm. you know, drug or to use in humans, yeah, it, wouldn't yeah. be, it wouldn't be a big deal to um, trial that. Um, mm. But I mean, the other strategy that we're using is to specifically target this molecule, Frizzled Seven, that we've um, now demonstrated is the um, the uh, cell surface molecule that binds um, Wnt, which is a, an all important growth factor for stem cells. And um, certainly in the in in the intestine and in the bowel, the um, the cells the stem cells which are marked by this uh, marker that my colleagues um, discovered LGR5, they are the cells that actually form um, cancer. So when this pathway is um, mucked up, you know, dysregulated. In those yeah. cells specifically, yep. that's when cancers start. And mm-hmm. um, these cells then continue on and sort of keep the cancer growing. Mm-hmm. And they express Frizzled 7. And Frizzled 7 is particularly upregulated in um, bowel cancer. And we've actually, and again, sort of many, many moons ago, we showed in an experimental model that you can block Frizzled 7 experimentally and um, prevent tumour growth. But to actually do that in patients, um, yes. it requires a, a different strategy. Yeah. You, can't, you yeah. can't do that sort of thing in uh, patients. And yeah. so we're working on antibodies that specifically target um, Frizzled 7. And uh, first-generation antibodies are already in clinical trials. Um, but we're working on working with colleagues in, um, um, in Canada to uh, – and they've actually already developed more specific um, and – I don't really understand how, but um, better tolerated, better, better, whatever, whatever, um, um, antibodies. And so we're working on the preclinical studies to show that those antibodies work. Cool. Mm. It's, it's, it's imminent. I mean, yeah, yeah. therapy is imminent. It's very interesting else. stuff. And I mean, this is one of those areas, as you say, a lot of people present late, they, it becomes mm. terminal. And Elizabeth, um, great to have you in the studio. Uh, thanks so much. Um, we're going to uh, go to a break in a moment, but Elizabeth Vinken, the head of the Cancer Biology Lab at University of Melbourne, thanks so much for talking to us on Triple R. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. And on Mother's Day. <laughs> and on Mother's Day. Yeah, sorry yes. about that. We, uh, you know, that, that's... Uh, yeah, we can, yes, my could, breakfast is still waiting. Could, could, oh. <laughs> well, you can go home and talk to them about the bowel and eat your breakfast. Yeah, have a lot of fun. Three. Triple R. listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane and I'm joined in the studio now by Laureate Professor Ellen Lopez from the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne and Ellen also has an appointment in the University of Washington. Ellen's an international authority on global burden of disease and the use of health data for the development of health systems and policy. Welcome to the studio, Ellen. Thank you. 
Now, why don't we start with uh, birth, death and cause of death data. What sort of information would we expect to see in this grouping? Well, it's the classical system information that we've had in Australia for well over 100 years, namely recording the fact of birth, a birth taken place, uh, what is, what are the, what's the critical policy-relevant information around that birth, the age of the mother, the sex of the child, for example. So the same thing for deaths. We have systems in Australia that have worked for over 100 years. Critical policy-relevant information is the fact of death, the age of death, and the cause of death. And, and in a country like Australia, how is this sort of data collected and held? Is there a central repository? There is. The Australian Bureau of Statistics has this responsibility in Australia, and they work very closely with the state registrars who assemble this information on behalf of the country. And if we move sort of to countries in, say, Central Africa, or even countries closer to us like Indonesia, do we see the same sorts of systems, or are they not in place? No, they're, they're much more primitive where they are in place, or virtually non-existent. So the, the data systems that we enjoy in Australia that influence policy here simply don't exist in many countries. Mm. And when you've talked about uh, this data, you've been highly critical, obviously. Um, what is the issue with this birth, death and cause of death data? Is it a problem with the data, I guess, collection, the management, the analysis? Where are the problems sitting in this data set? Well, I think there's three categories of problems I'd classify. One is simply recording the fact, recording the event. Many countries simply don't have systems that capture births and deaths in the country. So if you don't capture them, you can't intervene against uh, in the case mm-hmm. of premature mortality. Secondly is the quality of what they capture. So they often misrecord the age. Uh, they, they don't put the sex, whether it's a male or female, the death. But more importantly, they do what we call garbage coding at a great extent. The doctors who certify the deaths, assuming they're there to certify them, don't bother or are not trained or don't understand the importance of getting that cause right. So that's the second group of problems. And the third group of problems that I'd classify and, and, and consider very important is organisational leadership. Countries are poorly organised in the way these systems operate and they don't understand the importance of timely data. There's no point making policy in 2015 for data that's mm. 10 or more years older. Now, let me interrogate you a bit further there on the garbage coding idea, and I understand you actually coined this term some time ago. Give me an example of where this would occur. So a person dies, presumably of a, a certain condition or a series of conditions. What does garbage coding sort of look like in that circumstance? It's, it's a coin. It's a term we've coined that covers many sins, as it were, in terms of nosology, which is the classification of causes of death. But let me give you two examples that I think will cover it. So in many cases, in, in many situations, a country, a person will have lung cancer. They will come in uh, to a hospital. They'll develop other conditions and eventually die, say, of pneumonia. In many countries, that cause of death is coded as pneumonia. Right. So in the statistics, the, popul- the, the, the government's looking at a lot of pneumonia deaths and very few lung cancer deaths, and that is going to misguide policy action. Mm. In other cases, a person might die of an ischemic heart disease. Now, ischemic heart disease, heart attacks, have very clear epidemiology and etiology. We know how to intervene, and so it's important to understand the extent of the problem. But a doctor might just write heart failure or generalised atherosclerosis, and this is unhelpful for pinpointing the volume of ischemic heart disease mortality. Mm. Now, in a country like Australia, I mean, where we'd expect this to be quite good, what percentage of this garbage coding would you find in, in a wealthy country 
with a, a fairly well-established health system. It's surprisingly high. In Australia, it, it varies, but it's between 15 and 20%. Up to one in five deaths in this country are being certified by doctors absolutely incorrectly uh, and unhelpful for, for public policy. What, what does that translate into in terms of missed or, or inappropriately allocated funds? It's a good it's a good point. I, it, most of these deaths, let's be clear, are uh, occurring at older ages when there's often multiple morbidities present at or around the time of death. Mm. So in terms of prevention of these deaths and getting the right database to prevent them, I think the, the, the implications, the clinical implications, public health implications are less than were they doing this at younger ages, as they're often doing in other countries. So in terms of missed opportunities for prevention, they're probably not that severe in Australia, but they ought not to be happening. Now, I, I read that there was a particular case um, that was of interest in France where this sort of garbage coding was giving an inappropriate view of the health of friends, French citizens who are actually having you know, high cholesterol, you know, quite bad diets. It's quite a famous case apparently it is indeed it's it's known in the international epidemiology literature as the french paradox and our our work when we look at the french data says is it really a paradox and is it really french uh so uh the 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 paradox occurs because you've got uh very high uh consumption of very fatty foods and uh, lots of rich sources as there is in french cooking but you also have very low apparently low ischemic heart disease and when you correct the french data for garbage coding where the french doctors are coding true cases of ischemic heart disease to things like atherosclerosis or ill-defined heart disease you get a very close correlation uh with with the level of ischemic heart disease and some of those exposures in terms of diet Mm -hmm. now let's broaden the discussion out a bit and talk about age distribution around the world and the the way in which we put money into into the health system in in many countries especially countries that are less well off than countries like Australia and France. Um, How is this sort of data used for that type of distribution of funds at the moment? Well, unfortunately, it's not used as anywhere near its full potential. This data, these types of data on the cause of death distributions in, in populations ought to be critically important for guiding public policy. And they have been, in, indeed, in some countries used that way. So if you go back to in, in Australia in the early 1970s, which was probably the peak of our epidemics of ischemic heart disease, traffic accidents, uh, tobacco-related mortality, th- these, these rates were rising. They were clear from the vital registration data, but public policy was not reacting well to them. Suddenly that changed. There were tremendous declines in, uh, in, in, in public pol- in, in, in the level of these uh, uh, these causes of death, influenced by uh, often an NGO reaction saying, "Look, we've had enough of traffic crashes caused among young men by drink driving. Let's do something about it." Mm. So there has been, and there are clear examples of uh, of, uh, of societies and public policy reacting uh, when these data sh- are showing cause of death trends going the wrong direction i suspect a lot of our listeners would be expecting that the world health organization would be really on top of this issue especially the um the miscoding the problems associated with that the misdirection of of funds to areas where perhaps we would do more good if they were going elsewhere is the world health organization in step with what's going on here or are they a long way behind 
It's a very hard judgment to make, but clearly the response of WHO, if you look at the structure of WHO, you look at where the bulk of their budget goes, it goes mostly to the prevention of uh, communicable diseases and and around the MCH, maternal and child health agenda. Now, that may have been appropriate 50, 40 or 50 years ago, but the global epidemiological transition, the move towards non-communicable diseases, is now so strong and so evident and so comprehensive that you'd expect WHO to be investing more of its resources, more of its leadership potential in the control of these conditions. Mm. Now, we recently had a very well-publicised Ebola outbreak, of course, in Africa, and a few over 10,000 dead, I understand, which I can imagine when, when you look at some of these numbers, you must see that as a very small, although significant, very small number of deaths relative to some of these other issues. What have we learned from that outbreak and our ability to mobilise, I assume, billions of dollars into this one area. Are we, are we getting this wrong? Are we putting the money in the wrong place? Well, I think what we learn from that is that health systems are critically important in predicting how populations will respond to these kinds of epidemics, in ensuring that the health services that are required to terminate epidemics really quickly are in place. The countries that were affected had very poor and very weak health systems. They had very weak health information systems. So it was simply a reaction uh, from the global community, a correct reaction of course, to try to terminate these epidemics as quickly as possible. That could have been much more effective had these countries good mortality surveillance systems in place in the first place. Mm. Now I can imagine this is a very rapidly moving data set as, as we start to live longer we start to die of different things and these things change so how do you deal with that non-static nature given the difficulties in getting the data in the first place I think it's a matter of trying to understand what's the gold standard or, or, or an acceptable standard of information development for a country's level of development so for example in Australia we would expect higher quality information than we've got simply by uh, investing in in, in some uh, key areas like training doctors better, making them more aware of the importance of cause of death data. A country like Indonesia, what we would want to be doing is moving them along that spectrum so that at least at the population level, not necessarily the individual level, but at the population level, they could get representative data on leading causes of death. It's interesting when you when you talk about these different countries in the different stages. One of the things I've noticed whenever I've looked up health data is there seems to be a, a great interest in countries comparing each other's information, their life expectancy and so forth. How valid is that comparison given the problem you're describing? Well, I think th- th- there are two issues there. One is the validity of the comparison. One is the utility of the mm. comparison. This is an extremely important aspect of uh, national disease control uh, programs that we countries automatically compare themselves. They want to know how they're doing compared to their neighbours. So we want to encourage that type of comparative assessment. Now, the way we do it in our, in our work in the global burden of disease is we try and build comparative frameworks so that when we're comparing heart disease in, in Mali, we're essentially comparing the same thing as heart disease in South Africa or Zimbabwe or Indonesia. But the problem there is that while the standards for doing that have been set by the World Health Organization and in place for over 60 years, the the capacity of the country to collect the data to do that is not there. 
You're listening to 3RRR and we're discussing global health and the data that we use to impact on improving global health with Professor Ellen Lopez. I'm Dr Shane. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. Um, Ellen, let me move on now to some of the exciting things that are happening. Uh, in March this year, the Bloomberg Philanthropies Group uh, decided to form a partnership, a $100 million partnership with the Australian government uh, to start dealing with this issue, $10 million, of course, going to the University of Melbourne. Can you tell me what is this money going to be spent on? It's a, it's a, a big investment. It is indeed, and it's a very welcome investment, Shane. We've not seen anything like this before. So this is the first time that serious money from philanthropy or indeed government has been invested in trying to correct uh, this lack of data, this data lacunae. So the, the, the principal uh, components of this, uh, this investment are around measuring the exposure to risk factors, particularly for non-communicable disease in populations where we have no clue mm-hmm. as to the fraction of people smoking, the fraction of people over weight and secondly the outcomes of those exposures in terms of causes of death in population where again we have no clue as how many people are dying from lung cancer or heart disease or traffic crashes and who's involved in this this new program it's a partnership at the a global donor partnership between the bloomberg philanthropies and the australian department of foreign affairs and trade so it's a unique and innovative partnership between philanthropy and a major bilateral donor but it's being executed through a, a group of uh, leading global health institutions. Uh, The University of Melbourne has a major technical and leadership role in strengthening the vital registration data. The World Health Organization are part of the the non-communicable disease surveillance. So is the US Centers for Disease Control, CDC, as well as uh, Johns Hopkins University and the uh, International Union Against Tuberculosis and Lung Disease. I I couldn't help but notice there that you didn't mention the United Nations. I I thought they had a statistics division. Do they not get involved in this sort of thing? They do indeed have a statistics division. I think it's a statistics division I'd classify as being very traditional in uh, in its focus. It it has done uh, the same thing for the last 40 or 50 years, and it probably serves a purpose. But it's certainly not a um, an organisation that one would expect to be responsive to the types of health statistics that we're talking about here. Mm. I was fortunate enough, of course, to uh, hear you speak this morning at breakfast, and one of the things you mentioned was this great improvement that's occurred in infant mortality rates, and we've, we've really made some progress there it would seem what's next i mean these kids are, are living after after they're born what what's the next sort of target for us to go after in terms of making sure everyone has healthier longer lives well that's absolutely correct we've focused and probably correctly so in the global health community over the last three or four decades in reducing child mortality and improving child survival and we've done very very well but we haven't finished there is an unfinished agenda there's still five or six million children each year dying before their age of five but there's many many more surviving now, Shane, to young uh, adolescents. And so they're now about to experience those risks and those behaviours that they can adopt during adolescence, which will have serious consequences for the health in middle and old age. If I was to grab one of our listeners off the street and ask them, you know, what, what, are, the, what are the key things that are killing people around the world? What are the big issues, some of these real problems? I, I, I'm pretty sure the answers would be, you know, HIV, it would be, or HIV AIDS, it would be malaria, it would be these, these traditional... Um, diseases that we that we've had a lot of press on. What's the reality though of that situation when you when you interrogate the data properly and you have proper data recording? Well, the issue is proper data. So we do our very best to try to assess global mortality patterns based on often very fragmentary information. But we do have quite rigorous 
interrogation procedures for those data. When we do that, uh, and with uncertainty, what we find is that it's not diarrhoea, it's not measles, it's not pneumonia, it's not HIV that are the leading causes of Mm. death, but it's ischemic heart disease, heart attacks, it's stroke, it's chronic obstructive lung disease, and it's lung cancer and traffic accidents. They're in the top causes of death. Then come conditions like HIV, malaria, and TB. They're still important, but they are surpassed by some of the major chronic, disease, yeah. chronic diseases. So, so, I mean, when you th- say things like traffic accidents, I assume injuries are all sort of in, in that group. But what proportion of, of deaths are caused by injuries in this grouping? We estimate worldwide about 1.3 million out of 55 million people worldwide are dying from traffic crashes alone. So that's a, you know, that fraction's two to three percent. That 1.3 million is about the same as HIV, yeah. TB, and malaria. Yeah, that's extraordinary. And, and when we look at you, said just over 55 million will die in the next 12 months. Um, in terms of the number or the proportion of those that have their death correctly recorded, what are we looking at out of the 55 million? Well, sadly, very low proportion, Shane. It's probably somewhere, I would say, somewhere about 20 percent. One in five of those deaths are being recorded. So that's already very low. Mm -hmm. And of those one in five, another 50% are probably being incorrectly recorded or coded to garbage coding. So something like one in 10 deaths worldwide would I have confidence in the underlying cause of death. So what does that mean in terms of, we we spoke about at at the very start about countries having a proper functional cause of death system in place. Uh, What proportion of countries have this in place given those numbers are so low? It's about 45, 45 to 50 countries according to our methods that I would say have a, a, a cause of death system, a mortality registration system that I would consider very good, good to very good. That's, and most of those are rich, developed countries like mm. Australia, the UK, where we've been doing this for over 100 years. Yeah. And we still get 21 or 20% of it wrong. So right. that's it's right. not, uh, it's yeah. not perfect. So, so when, you, when you compare some of the countries that don't have a system at all, they, they have a long way to travel before they get to even where we are, which isn't perfect. They do. but what They certainly do. But what we've got to try to do, and for example, under the Bloomberg Foundation um, program, what we're trying to do is bring in innovative technologies, innovative methods, lessons learnt, that will accelerate that progression along the path. We don't have to wait a generation to improve the quality of underlying mortality data in countries. We can do that, we believe, in four to five years. Mm. Now, it won't be long before you have to get on a plane because you're heading off to the UK to launch a new Lancet series. Lancet, people, if you're not aware, is one of the leading journals in the world, and often they put out a series of papers on a particular topic. And, Ellen, you'll be uh, launching a particular series at the London School of Hygiene and topical medicine um can you tell us a bit about what the series will be uh, I, I kind of I've, I've written the odd paper here and there but i can't imagine writing a whole series in one go what will you be covering so the idea of this series it's a follow-on to a series we launched in, six years ago in 2007 also with the lancet the lancet uh, uh and particularly the editor richard horton is very keen on the role of information and particularly vital registration on births and deaths and causes of death in guiding development policies worldwide. And so he's got a very keen interest in in appreciating the progress that the world is making. And sadly, that 
progress is very, very slow and has been very slow. And what he wanted was a series of papers that document the lack of progress and why that matters, that look at, uh, another paper looks at the role that um, civil registration and vital statistics systems have in health development, that they are independent drivers of development, notwithstanding the level of um, education or income in, in, in a country, you can still make gains in health by having a good functioning governance system for your for your mortality data. A third paper just provides an, a, a modern, up-to-date, recent view of what's a very sad story, Shane. It's a lack of progress, mm-hmm. a lack of investment over the last 30 to 40 years uh, and points to the areas where this investment really needs to happen, capturing more deaths in systems, reducing garbage coding, getting the medical certification in, more involved in correctly certifying causes of death, using innovative technologies to capture and code the deaths of people who, don't, who die outside of hospital, usually in ro- rural and remote areas. And then finally, a fourth paper ties all this together. It's quite a a controversial, hard-hitting paper, but we think that the degree of inertia in this this area of civil registration and vital statistics is such that the the world and the public health community needs to be woken up uh, with with strong messages that this can be done. We have technologies, we have leadership, we now have funding. Mm. Uh, I can imagine, and I don't want to be too blunt here, but in, in some of the poorer countries, Telling them and getting them to understand or or educating them to the point where the knowledge that this data is so crucial to collect must be a a big task. I mean, in many of these regions, people are having trouble just, you know, finding enough food, um, disease is rampant. How do you get into those countries and actually um, bring their health systems to the point where you can collect this data? Indeed, many of these countries are uh, very poor, and, and survival is a, is a primary concern there. But we also we need to understand that the level of or the spectrum of development in low and middle income countries ranges from quite sophisticated. And we've just come back from talking to the Minister of Health in Brazil about uh, further improvements to the Brazilian system, and they're very, very dedicated and keen to do that and want to learn. All the way down to places in sub-Saharan Africa, where admittedly this might be of lower importance. But every country has a health system. Every country feels a responsibility to extend the life and improve the health of its citizens. So every country, in principle, is interested in learning how to do that in a cost-effective way with better information. Mm. And you mentioned cost. There must be an incredible economic set of drivers for countries to move towards these better systems in order to save in their health systems uh, over the longer term. Absolutely right, and this is one of the arguments we use. This often comes up, uh, and I've just come back from Indonesia talking to the Minister of Health there about uh, instituting a program of uh, measuring causes of death in their population in a cost-effective way and pointing out that with two-thirds of Indonesian men smoking, they're about to experience a massive rise in tobacco-attributable mortality. They're unable to measure it, but they're going to be paying the costs of that through their health system. And so it's trying to get countries to see a rational basis for investing in better information. Professor Alan Lopez from the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health, University of Melbourne, thanks so much for speaking with us today and good luck with your launch in London. Thank you very much, Shane, and a pleasure to be here. Chris KP, it's been one of those amazing weeks in uh, science where we're overwhelmed with news and uh, glory. Yes. And I have to say, the one that caught me, first of all, i got to mm, play this, mm. because I put a bit of work into this, I put a bit of an ad <laughs> together for them, um, is that NASA has announced the Journey to Mars Challenge. 
Now, it's, <laughs> hmm. uh, <laughs> like it wasn't a challenge already. Yeah, exactly. And this, so this has got nothing to do with that that uh, freaky company from the UK or Europe or wherever mm-hmm. it is that's thinking of putting, you know, it's got the competition going yes, for 100 yes. people and they're going to send them on a one-way journey to Mars. No, NASA's interested in bringing the people back or keeping them alive, which is, I think, novel. I think two totally different cohorts of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> anyway, what they are doing is they, um, they put out a contest which basically is, uh, you know, essentially what you need to bring along, um, how to minimise the um, the need for delivery of supplies later. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you want to go there once yes. and not have to have constant backup from Earth in order to establish some sort of, a, you know, sustainable presence mm-hmm. um, on a planet that is, face it, uh, quite a long way away from Earth. In fact, you know, it's it's a sort of minimum um, almost two-year journey it's to get to Mars. Commute. I think the minimum is about 500 days that yeah. commute. So yeah. we're not talking about, you know, I need some oranges. Yes. Okay. Two years later, the oranges turn up. Um, <laughs> now, so what they've got going is they have got, and I have to say, you know, I love NASA to Earth. I really do. You know, ever, ever since the, you know, well, even before the moon landing, yes. love. Um, but they're offering three awards for the best ideas in this area, and it can cover a range of things, including. I'll read them out. Shelter, food, water, breathable air, communication, exercise, social interaction. So, Chris, you and I could probably put something in on that basis. That is not crazy. Um, medicine, you know, all this sort of stuff. All the things you'd basically need. The three awards are $5,000 each. bit stingy, I feel, NASA. Yeah. If we work it out for you, I'm going to be wanting a bit more than five well, grand. Well, it depends. Maybe the answer is that, you know, I can come up with a, with a half-assed idea. Because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm full of those, and five grand would be a good payday, frankly. So, anyway, it's it's interesting. I think people should get involved. Will you help us, folks? I think you should. For five grand. <laughs> for five grand. <laughs> anyway, uh, look, it is a serious contest. So, if yeah. you've got something in mind, um, poke it in there to NASA. I'm sure they will, um, they will have a look at it. And I suspect um, they are going to be very upset with just how many applications they do get and maybe uh, the process could... Uh, yeah, it's a very see. interesting mm. um, process when you think that, you know, at, th- these are quite a range of problems they're asking mm. you to solve. And yeah, yeah. There's going to have to be someone back at NASA that's sorting through the nah, nah, no, that's rubbish, get, yeah. uh, get stuff, tried that, and the oh my goodness, you're a genius. Who's, yeah. who's doing that? Yeah. And to be fair, all of us older guys, um, we're not going to be the ones to help here. So if you're out there at a school, that's yeah. where you want to be getting the novel ideas because us old buggers aren't going to come up with it. We're we're too, you know, we've been, all the science fiction we've watched has basically coloured our judgments, I would say. So, <laughs> it's too late for us. <laughs> Chris KP, what else have you got in the world of news? Well, I, uh, so there's this thing, right, that people would know about um, when you, you know when you, okay, this may not have happened to you, um, but I know that there'll be listeners who have either been cleaning out the cupboard or pulling out that jacket they haven't worn for a couple of years or whatever, and they stumble upon, you know, the, the chocolate bar <laughs> from the, from the <laughs> 90s. Uh, and you sort of look at the use by date, so you're probably not going to eat it. But it still feels like it's okay, and you, un- you unwrap it out yeah. of interest, and it looks a bit wrong. It's all a bit white-coloured and strange. Right. This is the thing that happens. Um, and, in fact, this is why chocolate actually feels different in your I was mouth. Say, first of all, you yes. go, holy shit, this is big. Oh, yeah. It's enormous. Then. Because, because they've all downsized. You know, they? I mean, they're, yeah, they're all yes. much smaller. Yeah, and yeah. I, I pulled, I mean, nothing against uh, the company that's making them, but I pulled out a paddle pop the other day and I thought, at what point do they enter Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? Yeah. It just seemed a lot smaller. Is it, is it just that I was smaller when well, I started liking the them? Thing. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> when you're kids, those paddle pops look ginormous. Oh, yeah. They're yeah. big as your head. Yeah, you can spill most of it while eating it and it's still okay. <laughs> <laughs> Back to chocolate. Anyway, so yeah, and this is a known thing. Chocolate does get this white covering and in fact, the chocolate 
chocolate ingredients they use in different parts of the world are slightly different in order to minimise this because in Australia where it's very hot, um, mm. you know, your ambient temperature is higher, it's more likely this is going to happen. The thing is, like, it's really just, it's just oils moving around inside the chocolate. It's not going to hurt you. You can eat right. the whitened chocolate. Maybe not from the 90s. Um, but in itself, that is, it's not a problem. It's the same ingredients that were always there. But they've moved and it doesn't look as nice. And the chocolate kind of has a different texture too. It's mm. slightly more crunchy in, in a little less creamy on the inside. Anyway, a bunch of scientists um, uh, from the uh, in Germany using one of their particle accelerators um, have tried to study what actually is going on because we know that it's the same ingredients but they're in a different part of the chocolate. And what they found is they were able to actually track the movement of these fat particles through the chocolate. And chocolate, as you know, is not one... It's, it's a crystalline thing mm-hmm. and it has pores through it. And what these guys have been able to do is by tracking where the fats are going to when they move their way to the outside, um, they're able to find out the process of what changes on the inside of the chocolate and they've essentially mapped the 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 holes inside chocolate yeah. um, which is in itself just a bit interesting but what they've come up with is a very broad plan as to how you might be able to change this and it essentially comes down to changing the chocolate up front you need to change the um, the porosity of the chocolate when you first produce it and put it out um, reduce the number of holes make them a little bit smaller potentially um, and make them less uh, re- related differently to each other so that it's harder for the fat to move around. That's the best they've got so far. Um, my concern about this, of course, is that this is essentially cosmetic. It doesn't really hurt the chocolate to have it slightly white. But also, if you change the porosity of it, haven't you changed everything? Mm. Haven't you changed the whole experience of eating it? Is it not going to be different? To which no one has an answer yet. Mm. That might be a job for the Eat It Boys. Yeah, we'll leave that to Cam. He just yep. walked past, so hopefully you heard this. Uh, now, some interesting work has come out of uh, Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, by a guy named Michael Mina. And this is on, of course, um, well, fur- further on the issue of vaccination, which is going around mm. at the moment, and measles in particular. Now, measles is one of those really... Um, sort of long-forgotten diseases, especially in countries like Australia, where we don't mm. think about it much. But typically, um, you either get brain damage or death about two or three times out of a 1,000 cases. So this is actually pretty severe. It's pretty nasty. And one of the things that measles does is it kind of destroys your immunity to other diseases. So it actually damages the white blood cells that actually have sort of the memory of of previous diseases that you've held. So, you know, you, you, you have a disease, you build up an immunity to it after you've had it, mm. and you remember that. So that next time it comes along, you're, okay, I'm not going to get that again. Well, what measles does apparently is not only does it stuff up you know your body in other ways it also essentially erases that memory um, that you've built up that allows you to fight off other diseases you've already had so think about this there's a whole lot of other diseases that you might get vaccinated for Mm. there's a pretty good chance they believe that um, that memory that you've built up through vaccinations for other diseases may actually be wiped out if you get measles. So measles is like that little stick with the bright light they use in Men in Black. Yeah, it wipe yeah, out your just wipes out the whole lot. Mm. And so it's one of those things where not only um, does it cause a problem for your body because of the disease of yeah, measles yeah. itself, it actually also um, damages uh, the, other, the cells that c- contain memory for other, other ailments. Now... Interestingly enough, um, they, they looked at this in monkeys, and when, when they 
had measles, of course, the monkeys remembered that they had measles, and so they were then immune to getting measles again, but they weren't immune to all the other diseases mm. that uh, previously they'd had as well. So this is potentially a really big issue, and one where, because measles is one of those vaccines that um, people don't like to get in, in that group of anti-vaccination yes, yes. people, um, but it may be that actually you're not just choosing against measles, you're choosing it's against the, a whole yeah. lot of other stuff yeah. as well. So so this is, this is a really good new study about um, measles and, and what it does to the body Incre- incredibly powerful now a couple of other things chris kp mm, in the last yes. dying in the dying minute yes. of the show um an amazing uh heliophysicist oh god is that yes. a title you yeah, what yeah. do you do i'm a heliophysicist um <laughs> it's a niche market yeah uh maya Daya from southwest research institute in san antonio has for the first time ever captured imaging of a thunderclap. Mm. So it looked at a lightning strike. In fact, helped generate one by shooting a rocket with a wire attached to it up into a thundercloud. Yeah, thanks for triggering yeah, that. Yeah. Awesome. Lightning strike comes down, and then they, they put all these sensors everywhere, these sound sensors, and they monitored the shock waves and, and the sound waves, and they've actually managed to determine exactly how this is occurring. Now, people sort of get it, but yes. the real understanding in depth of what's going on, what causes yes, yes. a loud one versus not, is has not been that clear. And... Um, and what they determined was that the loudness of the thunderclap actually depends on not the length of the strike, but the peak electric current flowing. So whatever that mm. maximum was, so it could be really short and brief, mm. but that will give you the louder clap, which is not, you know, we kind of guessed that. It's kind of intuitive. But, but actually showing it and being yeah. sure, often these things don't pan out the way you think they would. So some really interesting stuff there. We're out of time. It's a, it's a shocker. The day's gone quick. It has. But um, you've been listening uh, to Einstein Go Go. A big thank you to our two guests today, Ellen Lopez and Elizabeth Vinken from the University of Melbourne. Both very interesting. Um, Chris KP, thank you very much. No, thank you. And <laughs> <laughs> you've been listening to Einstein Go Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. We will talk to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.